Well, hello there. Now, I know it's been a while, so in light of this, I've got a very special guest on for today's show. He is none other than the magnificent Martin Stelfox. Martin is a conservationist, an adventurer, a notable northerner, a PhD candidate, a stand-up guy, and the founder and CEO of the Olive Ridley Project. Now, if you've not heard of the Olive Ridley Project before, what's wrong with you? Just kidding, but keep listening because you are literally about to find out. But also, I highly implore you to Google them, look them up, because they have done and continue to do some really, truly amazing work. Last thing. In this episode, we're going to be talking a lot about ghost gear. And ghost gear is basically any old fishing gear, whether it's lines or nets, whatever, that have been broken off, chucked overboard, lost, and are floating around in the ocean, entangling up marine life and causing serious harm and or death. All right. Sit back and let my squishy neck plumbing ease you in to this brand new episode of The Imposter. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literature My guest today is an incredible individual. He is an adventurer, a biologist, and the founder and CEO of the Olive Ridley Project. He is a jack of all trades, currently a PhD candidate. Please welcome Martin Stelfox. So how long have you been in the conservation field? And if you don't mind, what what got you interested? I've been in conservation probably um, almost full time since 2007, and I probably say my dad got me into it really because he used to keep um, fish, so he used to like look after fish, and and it kind of snowballed from there. When I was a kid, I was super interested in it, and he got me interested in it. Uh, then I started to keep reptiles when I was about 12. I had. I don't know, somewhere in the region of about 50 or so snakes and lizards. I had a specially designed house in my back garden. Oh, wow. I was trying to rescue reptiles and help them out. I think at one time, I had an 18-foot Burmese python that was kept by uh, this this guy who was kind of abusing it, really. Just He was a bodybuilder, but he was feeding it steroids, so it was so oh, aggressive. What? Yeah, so I was trying to like rehabilitate and, and basically give it... I, I think I ended up giving it to a zoo. Yeah, so it kind of just snowballed from there. Then I did biology... Uh, university. I then became a snowboarder. I just snowboarded for, for quite a few years. It's completely <laughs> different out of, out of what I've been kind of used to. But I was always loosely connected to some sort of conservation, and it was always kind of around plastics, actually. Even in the mountains, where you know, wherever I was, I was always coming across 
plastic, trash, just just general debris. I got injured in 2007 from from snowboarding, and I kind of take took a step back from that, and then I um, kind of got into marine conservation from 2007, kind of rekindling what I was doing in in my uh, university days. Yeah, so I've worked around the world on different projects in Thailand, in Mexico, Philippines, all over. Um, yeah, right on. Yeah, we. To full disclosure uh, for the listeners, uh, Martin and I actually know each other from his time in Mexico, from a brief period. We do. We do. A little bit too close. Oh, it definitely was close. From our um, uh, camping kind of, uh, yeah, yes. living. Our, our scorpion mattress, uh, no running water, dead lizard in the pipe water. Uh, standard. Oh, yeah. It's lovely. Shared, shared, shared communal toilets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you went from, from reptiles to the snow, and then to the marine world, and yeah. you, you kind of kept with that reptile theme. Uh, you were the founder and the CEO, or are the founder and CEO, of the Olive Ridley Project. And for those of you that don't know, Olive Ridleys are a species of sea turtle. So can you tell us a little bit about the charity itself, but also why Olive Ridleys in particular? Why not green turtles or leatherbacks? Yeah, as I say, I kind of work in different places uh, as a biologist. In 2012, I ended up actually just after Mexico. Um, I ended up in the Maldives working as a biologist over there. And this is where the whole working with reptiles kind of started all over again for me because we were finding quite a lot of sea turtles entangled in fishing gear. Uh, it's also referred to as ghost gear. And at that time, there wasn't really anybody paying much attention to where this fishing gear was coming from. Uh, so I was kind of reaching out to different biologists in, in the Maldives and a few, of, a few of us just got together and we were just sort of just racking our brains on what we could do uh, and it kind of just snowballed from there really to, to cut a long story short now about 95 to well 90 to 95 percent of the animals that we find in, in ghost nets in the Maldives are Olive Ridley's and that's kind of where we got our name from the Olive Ridley project oh, right on so it was more of what, what was being the the species that was more commonly yeah, found absolutely I mean of course we find Pretty much all sorts, uh, all, all species of sea turtle have been found entangled in, in, in ghost gear. Uh, we've even had whales, uh, we've had uh, sharks, uh, all sorts of different marine creatures. So it's not just the Olive Ridley, but it is by far the, the most significant species that we find. Right. So uh, I imagine it, it can be quite hard because you, you can see quite, quite some gruesome sea turtles come up to, well, really all marine animals come up to you. Um, or be sent yeah. to you is that is that is that right yeah i mean that's kind of what triggered the whole founding of the project really because you know the, the, you, you got to imagine these turtles are, are kind of helpless once they're once they're entangled there's very little they can do to escape uh, they've got one or two options really they'll either continue to try and escape by using their powerful front flippers to swim forward uh, but in the process of doing that they normally cut real deep into their flippers and sometimes even complete amputations are not uncommon um, wow. or they're, they're so emaciated and so weak that you know they just kind of they're half almost existing on the surface until somebody comes along and, and finds them so we find turtles from just minor scratches and scrapes to, to those that have had complete amputations so it does pull on the heartstrings a lot and it, and it makes you want to kind of actively do something about it yeah so that sounds quite intense I imagine some of the sea turtles, would they not be able to, would they be weighed down by the ghost net gear and, uh, and even drown? Does that yeah, happen? I mean, that's also quite common. Um, obviously, sea turtles being, you know, they're air breathers just like us. So if they don't have access to the surface, they will drown. 
and we do find huge I mean we've found ghost nets that have been in excess of six tons um, so if a sea turtle is caught in the middle of that there's, there's very little chance it's going to make it to the surface yeah it's also fairly common for us to find five, six turtles in a, in a single net. Um, it has this like ghost. It's called ghost fishing. It's the perpetual nature of trapping and killing animals. And so once one sea turtle is in that net, it could potentially attract others. So we normally find multiple sea turtles in a single net, and they're all in various different conditions and, and states. So it is, um, yeah. Unfortunately, some don't make it as well. Wow, <laughs> really unfortunate. We had a um, one case where it was a leatherback. I, I mean, leatherbacks are quite rare anyway because they, they, they tend to stick to really deep waters. So you don't really see them that often in the Maldives. Uh, we had a leatherback come fairly close to some divers uh, and it was trailing behind it a huge ghost net and it was super tired. And underneath the leatherback was a, was a tiger shark just waiting for it to tire out. <gasps> wow. I mean, that's a very advantageous tiger shark, but geez. Yeah. Was that that a happy ending? Well, to be honest, I I wasn't in the water, but the divers, I think, attempted to try and release the the ghost net, but because, I mean, leatherbacks are really fast. Um, oh, right. just couldn't keep up and it wasn't really safe so unfortunately it kind of went out of frame so they have no idea the oh, fate of that of the but if, in all honesty it's unlikely that the leatherback would have survived that well happy ending for the tiger shark at least <laughs> uh, yeah at least for the shark yeah. <laughs> on that topic though are, are there any success stories that kind of pop out in your head yeah, so we have um, we have a rehabilitation centre in the Maldives. Um, that's one of the kind of what, what came of, of producing this charity, and it's run by a team of vets. And you know, for all the turtles that we find, we, we do manage to kind of rescue and rehabilitate and release quite a few as well. I think it's almost twenty turtles now that we've actually been able to release back into the water. Wow! So you know, in these cases, just kind of reconfirm what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. So it's, uh, yeah, there's there's not one that sticks out, but I think collectively just all those releases to us are, are really powerful. Fair, fair play. Are there, uh, I mean, I know the technologies might be harder to access now, but in the future is, is doing like 3D printed flippers for those amputated turtles, is that a thing? Yeah, so we've we kind of discussed this. Bear in mind, I'm not a vet, so it's not really my area of expertise. But we have had this discussion. But the problem is, so for instance, in an aquarium or a zoo, you can monitor an animal, or if it's a dog or a cat, you can get an artificial limb and you can monitor it, and it's and and you can see if it's successful or not. But with a wild animal, if you're trying to put prosthetic flippers on there or, or something like that, you have no idea what that's going to do when you when you release it. You don't know the effectiveness of it. It would be really difficult to see the success. Um, so the, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag and people are in two camps really on that. Also, you've got to consider cost. So for us, obviously, as a small charity, we're always looking for funds and that sort of thing. Right. To make prosthetics, it costs a lot of money for one individual sea turtle when you could potentially use that to save a lot more sea turtles. So we always kind of think of the bigger picture rather than just the individual sea turtle, as harsh as that sounds. I mean, to give you an idea, since 2013, uh, we've had over 700 entanglement cases um, of Olive Ridley's, and our, our rehab centre only houses eight. So we've got <laughs> wow. to be really selective. Exactly. So we've got to be really selective in the, in the turtles that we you know choose to, to help, because if we help those turtles that are double amputations, let's say, it means that they technically they can't be released, really. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so they're basically in the in the center for that for the rest of their life, which means we can't reach out to those tools that just need a little bit of first aid and then can be released straight away. So mm-hmm. there is that fine line, and luckily we've not <laughs> we've not had a case where we've turned one away. We we always help any turtle we find. Uh, they can be rehoused in different places. But yeah, uh, prosthetic flippers is just a it's a bit of a tough one to know the effectiveness of that. Yeah, fair enough. What what yeah. is what is the average time that they you know I mean I can imagine that it depends on the severity of the issue but yeah uh, what what is the average time that a turtle will stay with you um, yeah that that really varies like we've had turtles that have come just for the day um, okay. they just needed a bit of TLC a bit of a checkup and everything was fine we release it the biggest problem we find is they suffer from a syndrome called buoyancy syndrome where they're basically just floating on the surface. Apparently, I've been told that this is caused by micro tears in the lungs, which releases gas hmm. um, through stress. And then, of course, gas, it results in buoyancy, so they're very positively buoyant on the surface. And it can take quite a long time for them to overcome that, maybe a few days. We've had some in for a few months, and we've even had one patient that was in for just over a year. Wow. Um, so it really does vary, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, really, it's just, it's really comforting to know that there's a group of people out there that are actually doing this work, so... Yeah, and that's the thing, like, the Olive Ridley Project, the team that are at the Olive Ridley Project are just insanely passionate, and it's this this is the passion that we kind of, you know, we need in the world, these, these individuals that are just fully focused on what it is they want to do, and, and, and just, without hesitation, just kind of do it and get on with it, and it's, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just count myself quite lucky that we have a team that is so passionate, and, uh, you know, I'm very lucky to have that. Yeah, well, right on. So your your dedication to your work and all that you've been doing, it comes out in many different ways. Uh, I remember seeing you posted on social media, but you recently uh, contributed some footage to the BBC documentary uh, that was quite popular, The Drowning in Plastic. That's right, yeah. yeah. So um, obviously we run some expeditions in, in some remote parts of the Maldives and unfortunately it's not uncommon to come across turtles. So I do quite a bit of filming uh, when the opportunity arises and yeah, they, the BBC picked it up and, and wanted to use it. So they yeah, they used it. It's, it the footage was of um, Oliver Ridley, and, uh, Tangled Oliver Ridley. Yeah. So it was really, it was quite, quite hard hitting, I think. It is. Well, I saw it. Was, it, it was, I mean... The film itself is just, if you haven't seen it, I would recommend anyone to go see it. It's really good. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, we'll have to uh, put Filmmaker, I guess, onto that intro title bit. <laughs> I'll have to check out your IMDb page after this. You know, you're, you do, uh, you're credited in the um, Stealth Fox Files, the YouTube that we did. I saw that. Yeah, do you know what? I came across that the other day. I completely... <laughs> did you really? Completely <laughs> forgot about that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just because when, when I got a message from you, I was like, oh, I've not heard from you for a while. And then, I, I don't know, I just led, just clicking away, and then I suddenly came across the Star Fox files. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> that was a thing. Yeah. Uh, well, we should do another one of those. Maybe maybe that's that's what this one would be called. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you had a paper published in 2016 called A Review of Ghost Gear Entanglement Amongst Marine Mammals, Reptiles, and Elasmobranchs. And it was really interesting to read... Uh, for those that are interested, I'd also recommend that because it was a review. And one of the one of the findings, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the findings uh, of it that I found interesting was that there was 
a lack of research or records for the Indian, the Southern, and the Arctic Oceans. Was that a surprise to you and your colleagues? Uh, not really. It's places where there's no resources, and so it kind of follows that, that there'd be very little research in these areas. Despite how many people reside in the Indian Ocean in this sort of area, there's very little um, in terms of any sort of research on ghost gear in this region. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't, to be honest with you, it wasn't really a surprise at all. Well, do, have there been any changes? Have there been any updates since then? In, what, in the Indian Ocean? Uh, not really, no. Um, there's not many groups working on the issue of ghost gear or sea turtle entanglement in ghost gear, it's still relatively fairly cryptic, and certainly in the published literature, there's virtually nothing. I mean, I suppose it's also, you know, the same thing with a lot of marine conservation issues, is that anything in the ocean is going to cost so much more money, you know, than it would be in... You see, with ghost gear, I mean, it's cryptic, it's transboundary, so... Trying and, and also pinpointing it and or pinning a, a fishery or a responsible fishery is almost impossible because it's very difficult to backtrack and find out where it's coming from. So there's, it, it seems like there's a lack of responsibility, I guess, mm. uh, that comes with ghost gear. So therefore, there's not much research on it. But I think times are changing. I think country members, especially within the IOTC and the IOC, they, they, you know, they're working on various different issues relating to sea turtle conservation and ghost gear is certainly creeping in there um so i think in time we will start to see a bit of a change i sure hope so <laughs> yeah well especially because though i i do care for all all uh, animals and marine mammals and and uh, reptiles you know the elasma branks really have my heart so when i was doing research about your work uh, i saw that there was a rebuttal that was published to this paper yeah and it actually, it's it's a great example of the sometimes more contentious side of academia. Yeah. So your review was argued. I mean, was this something that you saw coming? Is this, you know, was this hard to rebuttal back or respond to? Or um, there, there is a response, but the, um, I think in science it's always healthy to have these kind of dialogues because it's... It, I think as a scientist, there's nothing worse than publishing something and then nothing happens or there's no dialogue or there's no conversation or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I think the, the points that were made were valid um, and it certainly kind of highlights, and it was highlighted in the review as well, um, it highlights the need for gear marking. Um, it also highlights the need for understanding the difference between when fishing gear is being used in active gear and there's an entanglement associated with that active gear. So basically when I, met, when I say active, I mean in use by a fisherman. Um, oh, right, okay. And then association with ghost gear. And there's that really, really fine line. And I think that's where the confusion and the, the dialogue begins. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of created a healthy uh, kind of a debate and, it, and it's kind of pushed it forward a little bit in terms of some of the recommendations I've been given. So I, was, I, was kind of, I, didn't, I wasn't expecting it. So I was, I was kind of happy it did happen in the end. Mm. I spoke to the authors and, you know, involved and, and you know, it's all, we're all working to the same cause. So and I, think, um, I think these things in science are, are needed, really. Uh, that's an incredibly valuable answer. <laughs> I mean, really, I, I, it's not uncommon to have people be more emotional about it and be defensive instead of yeah. more objective. I mean, so, I mean, there's unfortunately conservation is quite a, a, a small amount of money and everybody's trying to clamber for that small pot. Right. So when there's a new uh, kid on the block and that kid being a new subject or a new topic, if that topic seems to get quite a lot of traction, and the problem with ghost gear is there's not much research about it, so we have no idea on the impact, you know, the impact on populations or anything. We're not at that stage yet, really, right. in most cases. Um, so it's kind of unknown. But what we do know in sea turtles is bycatch, 
is obviously very uh, it's up there. And with with marine mammals, uh, bycatch is certainly most likely uh, you know the top reason why marine mammals are becoming entangled, not necessarily with ghost gear, but because there's so little research on ghost gear, it's very difficult to come to that conclusion. And I think um, yeah, this is why it sparks these kind of conversations. Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, this will have a little bit of exposure uh, for people that aren't aware of the ghost gear issue. Yeah. So speaking of, are, are there any upcoming projects? I know you're working on your PhD at the moment, but are there any yeah. upcoming projects that Olive Ridley Project is working on in particular? Yeah, well, so we're kind of multidisciplinary, really. We, we have the rehab side of it, but we work with local fishing communities as well because we always want to try and turn it off, turn the tap off, really, try and uh, address the issue at the source. So we try to work with fishing communities, and we have... Uh, yeah, we're working in Pakistan and also in Oman uh, and in Kenya. And uh, in Pakistan, for instance, there's one particular fisher I'd like to give a shout out to who probably won't listen to this because he doesn't speak a word of English. <laughs> he's a really nice guy. He's been fishing all his life. He's got Azif Baloch. Single-handedly, he's recovered almost four tons of fishing gear. Wow. And he's actually recycling that gear. So most of that gear now has been recycled. It's either been recycled into bracelets or it's been recycled into donkey harnesses or it's been recycled into dog leashes and anything has been recycled too the community get money for so it's like an alternative income so we have about 15 women now uh, within the community we've been working with for the last two years uh, and they're all making an alternative income out of this you know so they can see that there is there is ways of making money outside of fishing they don't have to focus on fishing so much and also it's a way of recovering all that gear and, and not not leaving it in the marine habitat so yeah that's a really exciting project and we're hoping to scale that up uh, this year then we do, yeah, so the research side of it, we're looking at the genetics of the turtles that are becoming entangled because we don't really know where they're coming from. So right. we're trying to identify where they're coming from using genetics. Uh, we do some ocean modeling also. And again, the idea behind that is to, to hindcast, so basically backtrack. When we find ghost gear in the Maldives, we want to backtrack it on an ocean model and find out what area it's coming from so we can better use our resources as a charity, which areas need more uh, attention and more help potentially. We've got actually one of the largest, uh, so... And this is kind of going off topic from ghost gear, but we look at sea turtle populations as well uh, because we kind of we, we take a holistic approach. We try and look at the bigger picture. Uh, so we're looking at sea turtle populations, and we use a non-invasive technique called photo ID, uh, where you take a picture of the side profile of a sea turtle, and it's very mm -hmm. unique. It's like a fingerprint. The scale, shapes, and sizes. Uh, it's very unique. It's like a fingerprint, and we can estimate population sizes that way. And we've got. I think one of the largest databases in the world now. Oh, wow. There's about 17,000 observations. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a larger database now and it's growing and we're working with a team of researchers on how we can speed this up using it, if, using apps and all sorts. So it's really exciting uh, and it's a quick non-invasive method that even non-scientists can get involved in. Yeah, you can and do a little citizen science. Bringing, exactly. It's about bringing in... Uh, people that are not necessarily scientists or have even a background in science, but can contribute. It brings them closer to, you know, to, to loving what it is they're seeing and understanding a bit more. Yeah, so we're really excited about that. That is all you can ask for, really, is for people to just get involved and to understand the world around them. Exactly, yeah. So what are you researching? What's your... Um... Topic. The, the, the broad topic is the impact of ghost gear in the Maldives. No surprise there. Uh, <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So like I said, ninety-five percent of those are olive ridleys, and there's no not there's no real nesting of olive ridleys in the Maldives. There's a couple of cases, but right. it's, it's generally not common. And so it begs the question: Where are these olive ridleys coming from? What population do they belong to? So yeah, I'm taking genetic samples of those entangled in the Maldives and comparing them to nesting females around in in India, in Sri Lanka, in Oman, uh, all over. 
yeah, so hopefully, uh, well, actually the paper's done, so I don't want to say too much on it. <laughs> it's be in review. Uh, but yeah, so that's quite exciting, and that'll be published, well, hopefully we'll send that off to be published relatively soon. Uh, we're looking at ageing ghost gear as well, which is quite a new area of study. Oh, right. Uh, where we put nets for fixed amounts of time, and then we take them out, we, we put them under a microscope, a really powerful microscope called a scanning electron microscope, and then we look at the different life forms that start growing on them at different times. Oh, cool. Um, we're also looking at barnacle growth. Can we track barnacle growth as a way to, as a method track to age. estimate plastics? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the whole idea is if we can estimate ghost gear and it's a, a successful method, we can plug it into ocean models and find out where it's actually coming from. As unbelievable. Uh, yeah. And then we do some statistical modeling, looking at ghost gear characteristics and and seeing if we find a net, what's the probability that that specific net, looking at its characteristics, will entangle a seatole. So this gives <laughs> us an idea of of, yeah, what dangers are we looking at when we look at a net? Uh, what, what characteristics of that net make it problematic for seatile entanglement? And then we try and we do a cluster analysis. So we're looking at mm. clustering all the nets that we find into broad classifications of fisheries so we can see which fisheries are kind of producing the most ghost gear in our region. Uh, so then we can maybe do something about that. That's amazing. So is that a bit like, you know, when they looked at the difference between, you know, different hooks and they realized obviously J hooks are going to cause a bit more damage. So they found the circle hooks and they started using those yeah. a bit more. Yeah. Well, uh, in a roundabout way. Yeah. So for us, it's not, it's not um, really to identify methods in gear modification, but it's more to say, okay, well, there's certain specifications of this net that seem to entangle more turtles than, let's say, this net. So what? how can we change the, the net that's most damaging? Right. Um, unfortunately, as soon as you mention any sort of gear modifications, fishermen just turn off. They don't want to hear that. Because yeah. it's probably going to come at a cost. Um, the way that they're doing it is very efficient. They don't. They want to catch their maximum yield. Uh, so as soon as you mention you know, gear modifications, it, it's all often met with quite a lot of resistance. So right. you know, it would have to be run parallel with education, I think, on that. On that. 100%. And to be honest with you, uh, so like I said, that's actually finished now. And I can tell you that the modeling can only really group fishing nets into broad classification. So we can't pinpoint a specific fishery, but we can say, okay, trawling, gill netting, that seems to be the most problematic type of net. And that's basically boils down to the fact that in the Indian Ocean, there's so much variation in net types. And there's very little gear marking that it's almost impossible when it drifts into the Maldives to know, to know where it comes from. And on top of that, you've got illegal fishing that happens in the area. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a minefield. And at the moment, with the data we have, we don't have the statistical power to, to cluster them as yet. Uh, it, only, it only results in a broad classification, which is still very useful information, but it doesn't get to the uh, specifics of, of fishery. Right. We're going to have to do a follow-up episode so that we can get... Um... All the updates, if, if that's all right, kind of just inviting yeah, me. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, no, part three. Yeah, exactly. So if people want to find out more about Olive Ridley Project, where can they go? Is, is there a website, social media? Yeah, we're on all of it. So we've got a website, uh, www.oliveridleyproject.org. And then we're on Instagram, quite active on that. Uh, again, just Olive Ridley Project. We're on Twitter, and that's op underscore Indian Ocean. And also on Facebook as Olive Ridley Project. So you can find us on, on in all those uh, different social media things. That's fantastic. Well, I will 100% endorse it to to all those listeners. You have a platform right now. I ask this to all my guests. Uh, you have a yeah. platform being, you know, on a on a podcast um, and on the internet. 
yeah. is there anything you you know want to relay to the public either about your work or about conservation the floor is yours so not to put you on the spot but i'm putting you on the spot well, thanks for the opportunity i think um for me it's it's just to kind of get over the message that i've been kind of seeing over the last last few years of just basically reducing our consumption because no matter where i go no matter you know in what part of the world as, as humans we tend to have this habit of over consuming and i think we think that if we recycle it or if we reuse it we're going to save the planet but actually we just need to stop using it full stop so yeah my, my message really or the, the thing i want you guys to take home is is try and reduce our consumption as much as possible in every sense of the word whether you can reduce the amount of meat you're eating can you reduce the amount of fish you're eating do you really need to buy that seventh pair of shorts <laughs> um that kind of thing so one for every day of the week i think we need to move to i cannot agree with that more i mean there's the waste hierarchy but at the end of the day it's like you said it's reducing it at the source the way you were exactly. doing you're tackling the ghost gear you know stop it at the source yeah yeah all right martin well we're running out of time but thank you again for coming on this was amazing i've learned a lot but we definitely need to have you back on so we can get an update on all the research that's been done and and best of luck to you sir excellent thanks for having me all right everybody that is gonna do it for today's episode thanks for tuning in and listening and thanks once again to martin for your wisdom and expertise and time and yes if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast or any episodes of the imposter show your support put your um put something where your mouth is we're gonna leave it as you know this creepy ambiguous thing but anyway show your support give us a like on facebook give us a share give us a like on soundcloud itunes send us reviews tell your family tell your friends tell your nan tell your dog i don't know tell someone but above all enjoy yourself stay curious we will see you next time everybody peace Enjoying the music? Each episode of the podcast features original music composed by the one-man band, A Little Off Pitch. You can find out more information about the band, including more of their tracks, on their SoundCloud page. Type in A Little Off Pitch into the search bar.